3: You all, and welcome to episode 66. clickety click Mother! Mother? Mother! Mother! Your mother's out, Jane. What is it?
2: Oh. oh, hello, Grandma. Look what I just bought. A ducky new slip. slip. You mean to say your mother allows you to wear things like that? Well, why not? What's the matter with it? Silk and lift. It's crotchless. Why, in my day... But it, it isn't silk, Grandma. It's rayon. And I've looked all over town for a blue like this. We wore sensible clothes when I was young. Oh, but, Grandma, pretty undies make you feel so wonderful. <laughs> Sheer extravagance.
3: Granny likes her sackcloth pants, does Granny.
2: I've got locks like this and they wear and wear. You see, I use locks. You take care of your own thing. Well, I should say so. She's
3: too embarrassed to send them to the cleaners sometimes.
2: On my clothes allowance, I can't afford to have them wear out fast. With Lux Care, they look simply swell.
0: Sensible Jane. Sensible Jane. Lux Care really does keep pretty undies lovely longer. Up to three times as long, in fact. Colour tests show. I've seen identical slips. One washed the wrong way with the wrong kind of soap, and one washed the right way, the Lux way. He
3: saw these slips when he broke into our house, by
0: the way. You'd be amazed at the difference after 30 washings. One was faded and drab. But Lux removed
3: all the DNA evidence.
0: So if you value your pretty things, Lux them after
3: every wearing. The police will never track you down. I know many of you aren't patrons, but if you are, then maybe you'll remember that during the last bonus show, I played you an episode of a British old-time radio series called A Case for Dr. Morell brilliant series that features some truly incredible acting. And by incredible, I don't mean good. Anyway, the episode I played was particularly memorable for a certain line during the show's introduction when a man visits a so-called Indian. To have a precious stone valued, it is quite possibly the worst Indian accent I have ever ever heard in my life, and it culminates in one of the best pieces of overacting of all time. A line so good that I want to make it part of the regular Attaboy Clarence show. To join other such luminaries as Gay Lord, Gay
4: Gaylord,
3: Gaylord,
4: Gaylord, I should say nothing.
3: A-lord. You have So let me play it for you.
4: I'd like you to look at this. I bought it yesterday.
3: Thank you.
4: I know you're the one jeweler in Bombay who can identify it. The black ruby. That's what I hoped you'd say. A cabochon ruby. Weight, 202 carats. Color, almost violet. I
5: know all about it. I handled
4: it once. There is no other ruby like it in all the world. I backed my hunch. I knew I'd got a bargain. It depends what you mean by a bargain, sir. I would not buy it at any price. Money is not everything, even to a jeweler. Mr. Hampton, do not keep it. But what's wrong? What you don't mean... Get rid of it. No matter what the cost, give it away. It is not called the black ruby for nothing. It will bring you disaster and death. And
6: death. And death.
3: So there you are. Please welcome And Death to the old show. And while we're welcoming new things to the show, let me introduce you to another new feature. It's new feature arama this week. Last week, I played you an episode of What's My Line, which is obviously a fantastic show. And over the course of the last fortnight, I have spent serious amounts of my downtime watching all the old episodes. Hundreds of the things, and you would be amazed at how many golden age superstars made an appearance on it. During every show, there was always a special mystery guest, and the panel, usually consisting of journalists, Dorothy Kilgallen, actress Arlene Francis, publisher Bennett Cerf, and a special guest panelist, would all sit there wearing blindfolds trying to work out who was in the chair next to the host, John Daly. I must just say quickly that since delving into this show properly, what has really resonated with me? is that the culture of celebrity has changed so much over the decades. Look at that panel. You have Dorothy Kilgallen, a hugely respected journalist and columnist with a wicked sense of humour. You have Arlene Francis, known throughout as the first lady of radio, a genuinely warm-hearted and thoroughly witty lady. And Bennett Cerf, who was famous not because of some publicity stunt or for his looks, but because he was the founder of Random House, which today is the largest paperback publisher in the world. People who really went out there and did things, you know? And it wasn't like it was hosted by some pretty boy who was only there to make the girls swoon. It was hosted by John Daly, a broadcaster and a journalist. Anyway, back to the game. As I say, so many Hollywood legends appeared on the show that I wondered if perhaps you would like to have a go at guessing their identities. That's right. Each episode from now on will feature a What's My Line appearance from a Hollywood legend. And it is up to you to see if you can guess who it is before the panel do. Just for fun, of course. I'm going to start you off this week with a good one. This episode aired on May 15th, 1960, and the guest panelist was the author Gore Vidal. So listen carefully to the voice, listen out for the clues, and see if you can guess who this is as we play Who the Hell Is That Hollywood Legend?
4: The Blindfolds in Place panel? Yes. yes. Good. Will you come in, Mystery Challenger, and sign in, please? All right, panel, as you know, in the case of our mystery challenger, we go to a different form of questioning. You ask one question at a time, in turn, moving clockwise, and we begin with Arlene Francis.
1: Would your name be on the entertainment pages of the newspaper?
2: I would say yes. Mr. Sir. Have you ever been, or are you at present, in a play that is running on Broadway? No. One down and nine to go, Miss Kilgaller. Was
1: that a yes or a no, John? That was a No. Were you born somewhere other than the United States?
4: No. Two down and eight to go, Mr. Vidal. Are you most
1: associated with
4: television? No. Three down and seven to go, Miss Francis.
1: Well, are you most associated with motion pictures?
2: Yes. Mr. Sir. Is there a picture in which you appear currently running in one of the big on or just off Broadway theaters? No. Four down and six to go, Ms. Kilgarrel.
1: Uh, Do you do anything besides perform in films? I mean, do you do anything musical, such as singing or playing an instrument?
0: Mm, yes. Mr. Yes. McDowell?
4: Mm-hmm. Are you mm. a, uh, a leading man at present? Of sorts. Ms. <laughs> Francis?
1: <laughs> Have you been in pictures for more than 10 years?
2: Uh, oh, yes. Mr. Sir? Are you married to a lady who is also in the public eye? No. Five down and five to go, Miss Kilgallen. Uh,
1: I'd like to get back to music. Do you sing?
4: After the fashion? Mr. Vidal? I pass. Miss Francis?
1: Well, are you primarily known as a dramatic actor?
2: Hmm, yes. Mr. Sir? Uh, are you very capable in physical achievements as well as acting? has been said. Well, I c- I can't. It has been said. Ms. Kilgallen? Uh, are
1: you currently... Uh, excuse me, John, but uh, could we backtrack? Has it been established that he's not currently appearing in a play on Broadway? Yes. yes. Oh. No play, no picture. No play, no, no picture. pictures, Not television. It's out of work. Okay. Uh, uh, do you dance?
4: Yes. Mr. Uh, Vidal? Did you uh, ever win an Academy Award? Yes. Miss Francis? Yes. That's
2: helpful.
1: Is a picture of yours about to open on Broadway?
4: No. Miss Arlene, done. so that you're not misled, what do you mean by about?
1: Well, I mean within the next month. Has he uh, uh, been making a picture that will open soon? You know, one of those... Uh, Soon-to-be-released yes, yes. motion picture. Oh, yes, you are? Yes. yes oh, well, yes. I'm glad for you.
2: Mr. <laughs> Sir? Uh, did you get your Academy Award for a picture that contains singing and dancing in it? Yes.
1: Are you oh. Fred Astaire?
2: No. Six down and four to go,
4: Mr. Vidal. Are you Gene mm-hmm. Kelly? No. Seven down and three to go, Miss Francis?
1: But he's not primarily a singer and dancer. Singing and dancing and... Dramatic. Oh, isn't it agony? Dorothy, has something come over you? No, I was just agonizing for you, Dorothy. Oh. <laughs> well, um... Have you done pictures that are, uh, uh... biographies of people? Yes. Yes? Sir? Yes? Singing and dancing biographies. Oh, isn't
4: it awful? Awful. Uh, Let's
1: get his
4: height. Was the picture, Gigi? Was the picture Gigi? No. Eight down and two to go, Miss Kilgallen.
1: Are you over six feet tall?
4: Paul, <laughs> far, far from it. <laughs> Nine down and one to go, Mr. Vidal. Are you over five feet tall?
6: <laughs> a
4: whisker.
0: <laughs>
4: I don't know. I'm you you want
1: to have a conference?
3: A Do you want to have it? No, I, I
1: bet Bennett uh, I thought he that.
0: heard
3: something. Right. We'll stop it there. Do you have an answer? Any ideas? You have until the end of this very annoying Jello ad to choose your person. je
6: Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jello family. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jello family. That's jell Yum, yum, yum. jell
7: Yum, yum, yum.
6: Jello pudding. Yum, yum, yum.
3: Okay, pencils down. Let's find out who it was and if you were right.
2: Was, was the picture that you won, won the award for, it, were you portraying the part of George M. Cohen?
3: Are you yes. Jimmy Cagney?
2: Yes.
3: Awesome. Yes, if you said James Cagney, then you are a winner. Big props to you and another edition of Who the Hell Is That Hollywood Legend next time. But for now. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question. Out on the show, or maybe not. Now here's someone with a handbell. Yes, it's time for the question. Again, I have to say, bajillions of questions have been dropping into the old pot in the past fortnight, one of which was from Dan, who writes, This isn't as much of a question as it is a statement in my disappointment that you are changing your format. I know they take a while to put together and for them to come out, but there is nothing I love more than a three-plus-hour podcast. It is one of the reasons that I was drawn to yours. I rushed this question to the top of the list today as I think it's worth addressing out loud. I have in the past month or two sent the odd reply to people on social media if they voiced the same sentiment. But I haven't actually addressed this properly. My bad. Dan is, of course, referring to The Secret History of Hollywood, which is beginning in 2017, about to become a more regular show. I'm hoping fortnightly. We will see how that goes. May I just say that although the shows are going to be shorter and released more frequently, they will still be in series form the way that they are now. So, for instance, I will be spending multiple hours on the same subject like I did with Alfred Hitchcock. I will not be putting five-minute ads or two-minute intros and outros on the end of the shows. That means if you are a fan of the shows the way they are now, all you have to do is save them up for a few months and listen to them back-to-back and have exactly the same experience that you have when you listen now. They are being designed specifically with that in mind. After all, you are waiting for months at a time to receive a multi-hour episode. All that is changing is that those episodes will now be broken down into more manageable chunks and released at regular intervals. My reasons for doing this are many, but the most important ones are as follows, and I'm going to be brutally honest with you all. Firstly, although I'm happy to say that the download stats for The Secret History of Hollywood episodes are far more than I could ever have conceived possible, some people prefer not to subscribe to the show. Instead, they will wait for a new episode to be released and then they'll go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever they get it from and download it. I can't really blame these folks because to suddenly find that your phone is full because a 600 megabyte Secret History of Hollywood episode is downloaded to your phone during the night can't be a happy way to begin your day. So a significant number of people wait until the shows are released. They find out on Facebook or Twitter or they check the feed. But crucially, they do not subscribe. This impacts my chart placings, which in turn makes it harder to be visible, and in turn harder for people to realise that the show exists, and I of course want to reach as many people as possible. Before January of this year, there wasn't really an option. I could only produce the secret histories in my spare time, so they had to arrive when they were done. But since some of you generous folks have decided to fund this endeavour via Patreon, I now find myself with more time to create these shows, which means that I can make them more regularly, so I'd be silly not to release them in more device-friendly sizes. I do hope you understand, and as I say, if you want the five-hour kahuna burger versions of the shows, then by all means save them up until they fit your requirements and listen to them back-to-back. They are being designed to seamlessly interlock with each other, so it will be exactly the same experience you're having now. Thank you all. Anyway, another question. This one is from Laurel. Okay, Laurel writes, On your recommendation, I recently watched Lost Horizon with Ronald Coleman. I didn't actually watch it with Ronald Coleman. To my surprise, there was a seven-minute sequence when the soundtrack played, but there was no film. Still photographs of the actors and publicity shots for the film were shown instead. Anyhow, I don't remember you mentioning this, Adam, in your review, so it got me thinking. Perhaps you have the only intact copy of the film in your possession. If so, the BFI could make you a very wealthy man and you could retire from your chef job. That's always the aim, of course. If this happens, please remember me in your charitable donations. All the best, Laurel. P.S. I am only 15, but I love your show. Thank you, Laurel. My show loves you too. Laurel then writes, My friends think it is very boring of me to listen to your show, but I don't care. Old movies are my thing. Well, that's nice, isn't it? I think I must get a you-have-failed monk for that one. You have failed monk! I have failed the youth of the world. Oh, well, at least I've got Laurel. The clever one from that bunch of friends, obviously. Anyway, as to your question, Laurel, Lost Horizon has been chopped and muddled around with for many, many years. The version that you watched is undoubtedly the 1973 American Film Institute version, which had the complete soundtrack, so all 132 minutes of the thing, but which was missing lots of the film that went with it, so they shoved a few still photographs and some other gubbins against the audio sections and have ever since presented it as the most complete version available. Hopefully they'll find the lost bits one day, because when you watch that version, you do always wonder if your disc is scratched. Hey-ho. This from Andrea, in brackets, painfully English. It is painful to be English sometimes, Andrea. Andrea's question is, can you please point me to a place where I can purchase secret history of Hollywood episodes that's for Android and not the evil empire that is Oichunes? I can't do the patron thingy grumpy other half but have clicked through to Amazon and will gladly purchase episodes pretty pleased with Jamon Andrea, the old ones don't belong to me anymore. They belong to Audible and Amazon, and they are there, waiting to be released. It's entirely up to Audible when they come out, though, and I don't get to know that, I'm afraid. You won't need to buy them individually, though. You'll just need to be either an Audible member or an Amazon Prime member, and the versions you will have are all new, shiny, and re-recorded, and super-duper, and high-fidelity.
5: And Death! (laughs)
3: As for new shows, they are coming very soon and you'll have access to them via the podcast forever. Very quick last question from Van, which is just plopped into the pot. Simply asking, I am a patron, how do I log in? Van, just head to www.patreon.com and look for the login link at the top right. Then just scroll down and get access to all the bonus content I've been putting there all year. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinky cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. Last week, I threw the reviewing gauntlets down to you folks and asked for your thoughts on the god-awful film The Cocaine Fiends from 1935. So the first person to roll up their sleeves and give it a bashing was Kevin Ryan who wrote What have I just watched? Weirdly the characters at the beginning of the film seem to fall by the wayside and it instead focuses on a waitress called Fanny and her boyfriend who get hooked on headache powder and see their lives go downhill. Why on earth didn't the film just start with them? What was all the Jane and Nick nonsense for? It looks like it was directed and written by a caterpillar, and the sound and audio quality was appalling, and the acting was bad, and it was too long. Part of me loves these terrible morality films, but part of me wants that hour of my life back. Love from Kevin Ryan. Don't hold back, will you, Kevin? Another review here from, I'm going to get this wrong, Alice Wernemont Bodner, is that right? Alice has very wittily reviewed the film with the line, wait for it. When they go low, they also go high. Good work, Alice. You deserve a Canterbury for that one. In fact, seeing as how you're partial to a little Gary Newman, have a Casterbury. Jordan Palumbo also sent in a review. In fact, this one deserves like a storytelling musical vibe. Hang on. There we go Jordan writes When you hear of a movie titled The Cocaine Fiends It can only mean you've stumbled upon something special However, whether that's a good or bad thing is left for the viewer to determine To my own surprise, The Cocaine Fiends begins on a rather exciting note A swindling man convinces a country girl to come back with him to the city He gives her headache powder which she later discovers is cocaine, leading her down a path of destruction. The story would have held my interest if it had stuck with the characters it had initially introduced. A quarter of the way in, we are met with two new characters, the car hop and a waitress. It's about ten minutes after meeting these characters that we find out that the car hop is the brother of the girl who left the countryside. Too much time passes without knowing why these people are important, which left me confused for a while. I was never really sure who the main protagonist was meant to be. The cacophony of differing characters with crisscrossing love interests is a dreadful display of a disorganized script. The two blondes were very difficult to keep track of, along with their own separate relationships. The drug-dealing man marries the country girl, but says he's in love with one of the blondes, and I'm still unsure of which one he was talking about. The whole thing frustrated me to the end. All in all, a bad film, although the characters snorting what they called Headache powder. Made for a good laugh each time they rub their noses. Four out of ten. Thank you, Jordan. I love that your name is Jordan Palumbo, by the way. It sounds like the last line in a limerick. Thank you, Jordan. Well, thank you, folks. More opportunities to review terrible, terrible films coming very soon. But for now, it is my turn to tell you what I think of some films three of the blighters, the first of which is from 1943 and is called Something to Shout About, starring Don Amici, Janet Blair, and Jack Oakey. So, you know how every few years or so, the world tends to go retro-crazy, and a particular period in time gets a dusting off and is declared cool once more? I think the 80s are currently the cool retro period at the moment. Well, back in 1943, I get the feeling that something to shout about was trying to revive interest in an uncool period because it's all about a group of has-been stage performers who have the wonderful idea of reviving vaudeville for 1940s audiences.
2: I tell you, Mr. Samson, you haven't got a thing to worry about. What makes a hit? Talent! And why was the greatest
4: talent ever born, invoidable? And Broadway's still boiling over with it. Come on, Willard, pull yourself together. Well, you can do anything you want. This time, you've got all the money you need. You're just like dipping in the treasury. A diamond-studded curtain isn't worth a nickel unless you've got something in front of it. What I need is entertainment that'll make them break down the doors to get
3: in. Quite a sweet idea, really. The main action takes place at a boarding house run by a former showman. And they all come together to revive vaudeville. Of course, there's a love story and a smattering of comedy and a bit of dancing. And it all leads up to the film's climax, which is the show that they've been rehearsing all the way through. Will it succeed? Will it flop? It's edge-of-your-seat stuff.
1: I suppose you've heard that Marvel's dead. Don't believe it. It's just hiding here in this room. Jeannie, yeah. <laughs> meet the
3: swing sisters. Don't rave me.
4: Me is really Ma.
1: <laughs> now, Ken, don't start giving away Ma's secrets. Well, you can't tell it from the back. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Wally Wilson, waiting for that big break. Say, I'll settle for a little one. Yeah, I bet you would. And this is Lily. You remember Alden Norwood, the famous ballerina? Why, of course. Well,
2: Lily is
4: a daughter. She got up her toes when she was
2: just that high, oh. yes, reaching for jelly on the top shelf. <laughs> <laughs> and here's Bertie. Bertie, say hello, will you? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, you toot? <laughs> <laughs> Hazel Scott,
4: the singer's best friend, also the best pianist in the business.
1: Only oh, there isn't any business. Oh, well, Hazel, you certainly can beat it out. Thanks. Oh boy, what I wouldn't give to play like that. <laughs>
3: the whole thing runs along at a pretty mild canter until the end. When the show starts, it kicks off with a dog act, which. I kid you not, is the craziest thing I've ever seen. You have dogs dressed up as men, walking around on two legs and going into shops and swinging on trapezes. (laughs) And the longer it goes on, the more dreamlike it becomes until after a few minutes you truly feel as though you're watching a David Lynch film. (laughs) It will mess with your head. So, the film ends up as a vaudeville showcase. The final 20 or so minutes are lots of different vaudeville acts performing, and it is absolutely brilliant. You have comedy routines and possibly the sexiest piano player of all time, plus the aforementioned dogs. So, unbelievably, the film actually succeeds at making vaudeville cool again. Do check out Something to Shout About, if only for the sight of the dogs walking around on two legs and wearing trousers. I can do tricks, I can. All right. What tricks can you do? I can tell jokes. Go on, then.
0: Knock, knock.
3: Who's there? Someone is
0: at the door. Let me see who's at the door. <laughs> I must find out who's at the door so that I can jump up and try to assimilate my body with their body like Suki, one of the bogs
3: from Star Suki, Suki, Trek. Suki, calm, calm down. No one's at the door. You were telling me a joke. I was telling
0: you a joke. And I got carried away, and please forgive me. I would give all that I own if you would forgive me, I would. Fine,
3: fine. I forgive you. Can I get on with the show now?
0: I can tell you another joke, I can. Go on, then. Why did the dog cross the road?
3: Um, uh, to get to the car park? The car park?
0: That's not a place. No, the dog crossed the road because he needed a poo, and he saw a comfortable patch of bracken on the other side of the road, so that is why he crossed the road.
3: Very good, yes.
0: I like bracken, I
3: do. Okay, can I please now get on with the show? I might need to find some bracken now, actually. Go on then, off you go.
0: Do you have any bracken in here?
3: No, I don't.
0: Then I'm going to go outside to do another trick.
3: Please don't say what I think you're going to say. I'm
0: going to make an egg appear.
3: Yes, okay, thank you. Okay, well, on to the second film today. Another absolute curio of a movie. The tale of a mermaid who comes between a husband and a wife. This is a film called Miranda from 1948, and here is a clip.
2: Who are you? Miranda. Miranda. Where am I? You're in
6: my cave. I brought you here. You
4: fell
0: out of
2: your boat. Fell? I was pulled. You're a rotten swimmer.
0: Maybe a bit light-headed, but to me you seem to
2: have a... Uh, Tail? <clears throat> I have. I'm a mermaid.
0: Though
7: it may seem to you, she's too good
3: to be true. The film tells the tale of a doctor, Paul Martin, who goes off on a fishing trip to Cornwall and accidentally catches a mermaid named Miranda. She drags him into the sea and threatens to keep him there unless he'll take her back to London and show her the sights. The problem is that Miranda is extraordinarily beautiful and bewitches every single man she meets, including not only the married Paul, much to the displeasure of his wife Claire, but also his best friend Nigel, who's engaged to Claire's best friend, and his chauffeur Charles, who's engaged to their maid Betty. Yes, it's very complicated. If
2: you'll forgive my saying so, I think she's a bit funny in the head. For one thing, I think she sleeps the whole night through in a cold bath. She what? Yes, I always hear the water being run in at night and then let out again in the morning. And the other morning when I cleaned out the bath, I found a piece of seaweed in it. How very peculiar. And then there's another thing about her which isn't quite nice. She... she never wears any panties. Never wears panties? No. Plenty of other underclothes she has, but not a single pair of those. I think there's something fishy
3: about Miss Truella. First off, what an absolutely stellar cast. You have Glynis Johns as Miranda, Googie Withers as Claire, Griffith Jones as Paul, Margaret Rutherford as Nurse Carey, David Tomlinson as Charles the Chauffeur. There's an absolute heap of British talent on display here. And yes, the eagle-eyed amongst you may have spotted a connection in that list. Glynis Johns and David Tomlinson, who would of course star as Mr. and Mrs. Banks in 1964's Mary Poppins. They are both much younger here. Crikey, David Tomlinson looks as though he's just out of school, and Glynis Johns, my goodness, is almost too beautiful to comprehend. It is no wonder that the cast all fall under her spell. In fact, at times, she comes across as more of a siren than a mermaid. There is a lot to like in this film. Firstly, it is a very efficiently told story. You get literally five minutes into the film and you have the whole story laid out in front of you. Also, it throws up some pretty involving dilemmas between these three couples who are sent into disarray by the appearance of the bewitching Miranda. And Margaret Rutherford is as excellent as ever, as the eccentric old nurse who believes in mermaids and who becomes Miranda's confidante and her best friend. And I have to say that this is a very charming film to watch. It has a real playful air around it, very romantic, very beguiling, and very pretty to look at. That said, it isn't perfect. The third act seems a little rushed and some of the more interesting problems are solved with a simple flick of the wand by the script. But nevertheless, it is a completely charming little movie featuring a fantastic gallery of some of Britain's finest. In fact, why not tell everyone what you think of the film on the next episode of this show? It is now the Film Club Pick. For the next fortnight over at attaboyclarence.com. So swim on over there and check it out. Then drop me your review at, adam at attaboyclarence.com and I shall read it out next time. On to the last movie this week. Let me ask you a question Who's the greatest superhero you've ever heard of? Batman? Superman? Spider Man? Ha! Then you have obviously never heard of, wait for it. The Reckoner! superhero who, wait for it, steals financial information, with the intention of, wait for it, exposing the financial irregularities of corrupt bankers. Yes, this is The Public Defender from 1931, starring Richard Dix as wealthy playboy Pike Winslow, who by night assumes his alter ego, that of cunning Avenger the Reckoner, ably aided by his trusty sidekick, the Professor, played by Boris Karloff. Isn't this just the most mental film you've ever heard of?
4: Newspapers that reached me while I was abroad had some very interesting accounts telling how uh, certain rascals had come to grief through the operations of uh, Will-o'-the-Wisp. A Phantom Shadow, I think they called him. Oh, i read about that guy. Same lot that's pulled all these jobs, isn't he? Same one who sent his warning card to harm of this evening. Is that what all the excitement the club was about? Calls himself the Reckoner. Whoever he is, he's a very rash young man for taking the law in his own hands. For he might be shot down at any time.
3: The film sees Pike Winslow, AKA the Reckoner, swoop into action when a gang of corrupt bankers ruin an honorable man and send his family into poverty. Now, don't go into this film expecting action or costumes. The Reckoner's superpowers basically amount to the ability to steal financial records and examine them for signs of irregularities. It's not exactly Guardians of the Galaxy. It's more like The Shadow, if The Shadow became a crusading accountant who couldn't be bothered to put his costume
4: on. Find anything in Drake's papers? No. No? There's not a thing that can be used as evidence against Harmer, Pringle, or Kurt. Well, then, boys, we've got the toughest job ahead of us. But Barbara Gary's father's as innocent of the Central Realty and Trust Smash as I am. But the only way we can prove it is by getting those three crooks. Get the photostatic copies of their individual income tax returns, bank statements,
3: and correspondence. We'll go over them thoroughly. Despite that, though, it's a pretty good film. The Reckoner sends warnings to each of the corrupt bankers telling them that he's about to bring them to justice and it's fun to watch as he finds a way around their protection in order to keep his promise. Plus, Boris Karloff is his sidekick and spends large amounts of the film hidden in trees which is obviously quite amusing. Anyway, if you don't need special effects and Infinity Stones to enjoy a superhero movie then do check out 1931's The Public Defender. Good fun. Radio, then. Well, seeing as how it's that Halloween time of year, and as we've just heard about the man himself, Boris Karloff, why don't we listen to a chilling drama in which he starred? This is from the always excellent Lights Out, and its name is The Dream. I'll see you afterwards.
7: Tonight, Lights Out presents another psychological drama, a play in which the principal part is taken not by the character himself, but his thoughts.
5: The voice you are about to hear is that of the thoughts of one Darrell Hall, accused murderer, sitting in a courtroom awaiting the return of a jury, which is to decide whether he is to live or die.
7: And as he waits, the thoughts in his mind seethe and swirl.
5: Seethe and swirl. Guilty. Guilty. Not guilty. 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 Not guilty. Guilty. Father in heaven, why don't I stop thinking those words? Words those jurymen are saying. He's guilty.
7: He's not guilty. He's
5: guilty. Not guilty. Guilty. Not guilty. guilty. No, no, I've got to stop thinking of what's going on in that room. The jurymen. I've got to stop thinking of them. I've got to keep my head clear. I've got to figure things out. When did all this start? Yes, I remember. That night, Wayne and I were sitting in my room, talking about dreams. I remember he said...
7: Oh, come on, Daryl. Don't expect me to believe that one. Well, I'm certainly telling you the truth. A fellow with your imagination wasting his time teaching biology to a bunch of co-ed nitwits. No, sir, you should be writing fiction. <laughs> I assure you, my dear Wayne, I've told you the truth. You're really serious? Of course I am. You actually mean that in all your life you've never had a dream? Never. Not even when you were a child. To my knowledge, I've never had a dream in all my life. Well, how do you like that? <laughs> I like it very well.
5: <laughs> I close my eyes, oblivion, and then I wake up. No
7: nightmare hangovers for me, maybe. Now, uh, <laughs> Now, wait a minute, Daryl. Let me get this straight. You mean you've never even had a dream after, uh, you know, eating a Welsh rare bit at midnight or surrounding a dozen green apples or anything like that? (laughs) Believe me, Wade,
5: I've never had a dream of any shape, form, or description in all my life. A dream to me is just a word, something that happens to other people but not to me. But everyone must dream. (laughs) Well, perhaps. But it just so happens that my subconscious doesn't work that way. I
7: tell you again, I have never dressed. Well, what do you know about that? Just unbelievable, I tell
6: you.
5: Unbelievable. Yes, that's what he said. Unbelievable. It was unbelievable that I'd never dressed. Then after a while, he went away and left me there. It was early evening. But I remember that somehow, strangely, I was very tired. I sat down in the easy chair. Oh, I... I closed my eyes. I slept. And then, then it happened. A strange murmuring in my head. Yes, that's how it started. A murmuring as if in warning. And then, in, in the darkness around me, strange faces lifting and falling, white faces faces without hope, their eyes full of horror, their white bloodless lips pleading wordlessly in a way that made the heart of me cry out in pity. And suddenly, I knew I was asleep and dreaming. Yes, dreaming for the first time in my life. And these faces I was seeing were things out of a dream. And even as I knew that, the dream was gone. Black. And yet I knew that I was still asleep. And I had a terrible feeling of foreboding, of a horror to come in that dream. What? How? I didn't know. But I wanted to stop sleeping. I wanted to open my eyes quickly before... And then I saw her moving slowly toward me out of the darkness that was my dream. At first, a white, race-like thing and I saw it was a woman. Yes, the body of a woman, but the face. Father in heaven, that face. Gross, unclean, thick, bestial brows, wrinkles of venery, the lecherous writhing of thin crimson lips that lifted from teeth, bite and pointed, and flecked with blood. Yes, a glorious body and a face From hell. Closer. Closer to me. And then she spoke one word. Kill. Yes, that's what she said. Kill. And as she said it, she moved closer. Her hands went out, her eyes, in my dream I screamed. I awoke. I remember. Just at that second the clock on the mantel began striking. Five, six, seven. Thankfully, I counted each chime, since the hearing of it meant that I was awake, awake out of the horror of that dream. When the clock had stopped chiming, I sat there. My one thought was, If this be dreaming, let me never dream again. What was that? I sat still afraid to move. And then I laughed. It was my own heart. My own heart still pounding with fright at what I'd seen in my first dream. Oh, why do I sit here thinking of what has been? The jury in there. They've got to hang me.
8: See him.
5: They've got to hang me.
7: Hang
5: him. Bring him. No, no, I mustn't think of that. Better to keep my thoughts on how it all started. Better to figure things out. Where was I? Ah, yes. Sitting there, listening to the beating of my heart. Thinking of the horror of that dream. And then suddenly that strange wordless murmur I had heard in my dream was whispering in my head again. Quickly as it began, it was gone. How could this be? I was awake, awake. This was no dream. Then why had I heard that wordless entreaty? That same sound that had come from those miserable white faces that had floated before me while I slept. Why? Why? I heard it down behind me. Who? Why, yes, my friend Wayne. Must be he. Come back into the room, standing behind my chair, thinking I was asleep. I turned round and said, Wayne, is that you? Ah! Yes. I screamed. I screamed so loudly there was blood in my throat. For it was she again, that woman, that woman out of my dream. But this wasn't a dream. She was standing there, I tell you. She was standing there close to me, looking at me. And those lips out of hell said that one word. You. I jumped to my feet. No one in the room, no one, I tell you. I remember standing there, my head reeling. Who was she? Where did she come from? But there was no one in the room. Had there been anyone there? I didn't sleep that night. But by morning, yes, by morning, I had it all figured out. Two dreams. That's what it had been. And the second had been more vivid than the first. Why, of course. I'd never dreamed before. So, of course, my first dreams would seem reality. How easy it was to quiet the unrest in my mind. Easy to make oneself believe what one wants to believe. And yet, some measure of uncertainty remained with me. And Mary saw it in my face when I had dinner with her that night.
8: Daryl, do you mind if I ask you something?
5: Why, what a question. Of course
8: not. Is there something wrong?
5: You mean with the dinner? Well, you know, this is my favorite restaurant.
8: With you, dear. Has something gone wrong at the university?
5: Why do you ask that?
8: The worry in your eyes.
5: Oh.
8: What is it, dear?
5: Oh, it's nothing. It's nothing important.
8: You've changed your mind about loving me? Mary. Then tell me what it is, please.
5: All right. It's really nothing to concern yourself over. Just a... a dream.
8: Dream? Daryl, you dream.
5: Yes. Last night.
8: How oh, marvelous. Now you're normal even when you sleep. <laughs> <laughs>
5: That's right, isn't it? I'm back to normal, Fiona.
8: <laughs> and here I thought from the expression on your face that it was something really important. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Funny, isn't it?
8: And I suppose in your first dream you dreamt of a <laughs>
5: glorious, <laughs> seductive woman. No, Mary.
8: Ah. Did you have a nightmare?
5: If you don't mind, let's Let's not talk about it anymore. Shall we have our dessert now? Now, I suggest the hot green apple pie with cheese. Daryl,
8: and... was it as bad as all that? Horrible. Oh, that's cruel. Your very first dream, an unhappy one. Oh, well, I'm sure that if you dream again, you've more interesting times ahead. Oh, Daryl, look at the time. A minute to seven, and we promised the Armstrongs we'd pick them up at 7.15. Daryl, what is it? Your face.
5: Do you hear it? Hear what? You do hear it, don't you? The voices.
8: voices? Daryl, what are you talking about? Well, the people in this restaurant are most well behaved.
5: Gone. Just the way it was before.
8: Daryl, please, if this is a joke, please tell it to me. <gasps> Daryl, what is it? What are you staring at? What's behind my chair? What's there, Daryl? Tell me what <laughs> <you> think... <laughs> Daryl, the table...
6: Why did you throw over the table? Gerald, what is it? What is it? Why did you scream like that? What's the
8: matter with you,
5: Darryl? Yes, she wanted to know why I had done it. Screamed, thrown over the table. They all wanted to know. But how could I tell them, tell them of her standing behind Mary's chair, that thing of degradation, and those lips saying, kill, I went home. Mary thought I was overworked. No, darling,
8: you've been working so hard. Go home and rest, dear. That's all you need,
5: rest. Rest, rest. What good was rest? I had to reason things out. All my life I'd lived with reason, and now this, this horror. I had to know all about it. Now, I was certain it was no dream. What I had seen there in the restaurant had been no thing of sleep. Hallucination. Yes. That was it. I had been working hard. Too much work was the answer, and rest would cure that. Yes, indeed. And so I rested through the next day. It was quite dark when I awoke. The phone rang. It was Mary calling to find out how I felt.
6: Are you sure you're all right, Daryl?
5: Why, yes, Mary, yes. I'm fine, thank you. You sound all
6: right.
5: Your advice was good, dear. Apparently, rest was just what I needed.
8: Then go along back to bed. I'll talk to you tomorrow.
5: All right, dearest. Thanks for calling.
8: Goodbye, dear. Sleep well tonight.
5: I hung up the receiver. And then the clock on the mantel behind me began striking. oh well. Each time it had been seven when it had happened. And then, with the last chime of the clock, I realized it was seven again. Seven! Would I see her again? I stood there, back against the wall, waiting. So quiet, I could hear the clock ticking away the seconds. Would it happen again, this hallucination of mine? I waited. I heard no pitiful murmur of voices. Quiet. So dark in the room. I could see the shadowy emptiness of a chair near the other wall. And then the chair was no longer empty. There was someone in it. I said, who's there?
6: Answer me, who's there?
5: No answer. The strange darkness in the room. Deeper and deeper, I could see nothing. And then... Two swirling pools of flame led right, closer and closer. I stood there, I couldn't move. A rumbling began in my brain. Fear, I tell you, fear tearing up my brain louder and louder while those red circles of light came closer and closer. Father
6: in heaven, what was it? What?
5: And then I knew it was her eyes. Her eyes burning close into mine, into the brain of me,
6: pounding one thought into me. Kill, 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 kill. Why
5: did she say that? Why? Kill whom? Why should I kill? Why should I kill? If I had known then. The jury. They're coming back. The verdict. What? What? No, not yet. Still out. Oh, they've got to find me guilty. I've got to hang. I've got to. If I live. Oh, but I mustn't think of that. I must think of what happened. Where was I? Ah, oh, yes. That. that woman. Her eyes pounding that word into me, and then. gone again. But this was no dream. Then what? A voice within me whispered, Crazy, crazy,
7: crazy. No,
6: I was fainting! That horror was real, real as the breath in me. And with that realization, the coldness of a wind
5: blew around me and clutched at my heart. For if she was reality, somehow I knew that I was lost. And so it began, night after night, at the stroke of seven, First that wailing dirge of those lost souls, and then her writhing lips.
6: Kill, 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 kill. kill.
5: Words began pounding in my head so that even when she wasn't there, I heard them. I hid in my room. I didn't go out. People would see this madness that had come over me. I went nowhere, and soon I knew that they were talking of
7: me. I, told you, I don't know what's come over, Daryl. Hides in his rooms, won't even talk to me. Something's wrong there. And Mary. Please,
8: Daryl, you've got to let me see you. This talking over the phone or oh, darling,
6: what's wrong? What's
5: wrong? The night after night, the horror of. And the greater horror. Kill, kill,
6: kill, 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 kill. Mary kill. pleaded with
8: Daryl, "If you love me, please let me see you, talk to you. Come over to my house tonight. Oh, please, Daryl. Oh, perhaps I can help you. Please, darling, please."
5: I didn't want to go, but I went that night. Perhaps she could help. Yes. Help me understand the madness of those wailing voices and drifting white faces. Understand the horror of that woman and that maddening world. Mary, so understanding, so gentle, she could help me clear my head of the madness. Oh, Daryl,
8: you're
5: here at last. Mary, help me. You will help
8: me. Oh, Daryl, your face so white. Oh, I... Don't talk yet. Sit here and rest.
5: I'm saying, Mary, believe me, I'm saying. Of
8: course, dearest, of course
5: you are. But that madness outside of me, those white drifting faces moaning. At
6: rest, me. darling. And that woman out of hell. Woman? Her eyes and lips telling me to... The time. What? The time. What time is it? At seven. <gasps> Daryl, what is it? I've lost track. I've got to get out of here. Daryl, don't...
5: Don't go! Too late. Daryl, what is it?
8: Too late. Late.
5: You hear them, don't you, Mary? I'll
8: go call a doctor.
5: Listen to them. Their voices are so loud tonight. Listen, Mary. Daryl,
6: don't. There's no one here. You hear
5: them. You must hear them. What are they saying? Louder and louder, trying to tell me something.
6: What are you saying, you out there? What are
5: you saying? Darrell, stop! They're gone. Faces, voices, gone. Oh,
8: she'll be. Afraid. Oh, dear, please, you're right, make me. Kill.
6: Kill. 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 You hear her, Mary. You hear her. Mary. No, no, Darryl, please. Kill Louder and louder and louder. Kill, I hear her. to laugh, I tell you. Make her stop, kill, Mary. Make her stop. Stop kill, it. She, Devil, you, what do you want to be? Stop it. Stop it. I can't stand anymore. Kill, 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 Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, go away, go away, I'll kill, I'll kill, I'll kill. They'll go out oh, of my neck, choking me. They'll know. Kill, <laughs> kill.
5: had killed her. My sweet, gentle little Mary killed her with my own hand. I opened my hand. She fell to the floor. I went out into the street. People all around me, hurrying. I was in no hurry. What that woman had wanted, I had done. I had killed. I walked all night. It didn't matter where. And in the morning, I found myself on the campus of the school before the very building in which a class was waiting for my lecture. I went in. (laughs) I walked up on the platform... and looked down into their faces I said to them ladies and gentlemen my lecture for today will be on the subject of the selective factor in the evolutionary I stopped a murmur in the air those voices again but it was broad daylight I've never heard those voices in daylight before What did they want of me? What were they saying? There was a strangeness in their pitiful voices. Yes, like... Yes, like a dirge. A dirge of tears and sorrow for someone. For me, yes. For me.
6: And then... Her voice. Laughing. Laughing. Triumphant. Then I
5: understood. For the first time I understood everything. She had
6: triumphed over me. That was why those lost souls were waving a badge over me. I was hers, hers forever. I turned and ran out of like a Ran, ran, and as I ran, those voices of the damned who were talking to me. We are as we are doomed. Uh, no. it, do. We listen to her and no. Her no. murder to all eternity but covered with my ears with my hands I ran no use I hurt them I hurt only one hope for you man one hope expiate your crime on the gallows pay for what you have done on the gallows and you shall
5: have one way. hope man one hope so that was it my one hope if I paid society for my crime, she would fail. I would be free of her, that thing, that essence of evil, that siren who called men to murder so that their souls would be slaves to her for all eternity. Yes, yes,
6: I'd pay for my crime. I ran on, on back to Mary's house. Yes, I'd pay him gladly with my life to have the peace of the rest of oblivion.
5: I went back into the house. Yes. Mary was lying there, cold. I lifted her. Those same hands that had crushed the life out of her lifted her and carried her out into the sun. My eyes were so filled with tears that I could hardly see where I walked. People began milling about me.
6: He's got a woman in his arms. Well, where is he carrying her? She must have it. No, look, he's there. What?
7: Who killed her? her? Hey, mister. Hey, Hey, mister, who killed her? I did. Who killed her? I killed her. With my own hands,
5: I killed her. And please, I want to die
6: for her.
5: And then the trial. My friends, they wanted to save me. Clever eternities, sanity commissions, and twists of the law. But I wanted to die. I tell you, I had to die. If they set me free, if I lived and died as most men die, the death they call a natural one, then she would have me.
6: No, no. I want to hang by the neck until dead. I want that noose around my neck. The trap beneath my feet, the jailer pulls the switch. (coughs) My feet dancing in air. The noose strangling me as my hands strangle Mary. Free for my rival and I'll be free. Free of that horror with the writhing lips, blood-stained teeth.
7: Order the court. Order the court. The jury. They're coming in. Guilty. They've got to find me. Gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. Guilty. The clerk of the court will read me. the verdict, please i the Find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree. Oh, guilty?
6: Guilty? Guilty? You hear that, you thing out of hell? Guilty? Ha 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 you. ha 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 What's the meaning? Stand back, everybody! Doctor, doctor, right this way, doctor. Ambulance! Stand back, please.
7: It's no use. This man is dead, heart attack. Hold it. Would
5: you take a look at his face?
7: Yeah. As if he was looking at the devil himself. (laughs)
3: And that was the wonderful Boris Karloff in The Dream, from the series Lights Out. Great stuff. It simply remains for me to wish you the very best. Patrons, the bonus show is coming in a few days' time. If you'd like to become a patron and receive extra stuff, then listen on to the end of the show. I haven't said this for a while, but if you have a few moments to spare, I'd very much appreciate an iTunes review. Again, thank you for joining me. I shall see you again in a fortnight. But until then, take very good care of yourselves. And bye for now.
5: And death!
3: If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner pledges start from as little as one dollar a month and in return you'll receive exclusive emails bonus episodes previews and ebooks and every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron thank you